millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode has frequent references to sex, homophobia, persecution, mental illness and suicide. It also includes descriptions of murder, corporal and capital punishment and post-mortem dissection. Details given are not gratuitous, but listener discretion is strongly advised. It's the late afternoon of Tuesday the 5th of March 1872 and Melbourne feels like it's melting. While it's officially autumn, all week it's been hot enough to make butter run like honey. Walking near the Fitzroy Gardens on the southeastern edge of the city, Police Constable John Balfour is feeling the heat more than most thanks to his woolen uniform. Scorching as it is though, perhaps he's basking just a little in the warmth of the limelight. After all, it's not every day that an officer sees his name in the newspapers. Constable Balfour is newly noteworthy for the supporting role he's played in a real-life criminal melodrama that set tongues wagging all over the colony of Victoria. See, last month, handsome junior Melbourne law clerk Henry Dixon ran off with a beautiful and wealthy young Q woman named Adeline Millwood. What's made their romance so very scandalous is that she is very much married and very much the mother of two very small children. Further, when Mrs Millwood and Mr Dixon ran off, they allegedly funded their flight from decent society by hocking a handful of her hubby's valuables. The cuckolded Mr Millwood had an arrest warrant issued. The charge against Henry Dixon? Larceny and wife abduction. The newspapers have branded this romantic folly as the Q-elopement. 
descriptions of the wanted couple were flashed by telegraph to police stations across Victoria. And at Echuca on the Murray River, 140 miles north of Melbourne, it was Constable John Balfour who quickly realised he had the Lopers right in his midst. Last Wednesday, as the lovers promenaded through his town, the plucky policeman pounced. He clapped the handcuffs on Henry while Adeline protested her lover's innocence. Then came affecting scenes in the Echuca Watch House as they pledged their undying love for one another. In the days that followed, it fell to Constable Balfour to bring Henry on the train to Melbourne to stand his trial, Adeline accompanying him, ready to defend their case. Newspapers are treating the story as a bit of a comedy, even though it's serious legal business because if Henry is convicted, he might be sentenced to a year or two in Pentridge Prison. Constable Balfour has remained in Melbourne so he can give evidence in Kew Police Court later this week. Thanks to his proximity to Henry and Adeline, he knows there's a lot more scandal to come. And when the couple's story is heard, public scorn will very likely swing to public sympathy. But for the moment, on this sweltering Tuesday afternoon, Constable John Balfour isn't obliged to concern himself with the mess other people make when following their hearts beyond what's legal, moral, decent and... Constable Balfour hears the shot. Maybe 100 yards closer to town, a puff of smoke rises over shrubs and trees in the Treasury Gardens. Constable Balfour rushes for the spot. As he closes in, a panicked groundskeeper beckons him to hurry. Constable Balfour reaches a secluded lawn beneath willow trees and by a little creek. What he and gardens workers behold defies all rational understanding. Two youngish men lay on their backs. They're six feet apart. Between them, on the grass, is a big pistol. It's cocked and loaded and ready to fire. There are no other weapons in sight. Yet, one of the fellows is already shot and he's badly wounded. His shirt is torn away, his left breast is bloody and peppered with bullet wounds. The other man? He's alive. He seems unhurt and he's reclining calmly, smoking a cigar. Constable Balfour goes to the gunshot victim. Someone has already run to fetch a doctor. Not that anything can be done to save this man, who's quite clearly breathing his last. Constable Balfour moves to the cigar man. Are you injured? The police officer asks. Removing the stogie from his mouth, he replies, No, I'm not wounded. A gardener there asks, Why did you shoot him? The man answers, He shot himself. But then the cigar man tells Constable Balfour and the other men standing around, We agreed to die together. He tried to shoot me, but could not. All will be explained. But all will not be explained. Not to a society that doesn't want to hear. Not to a society that, while it might make a romantic comedy out of forbidden love between a man and a woman, can be relied upon to condemn men who love men condemn them to fates worse than death. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. You're listening to We Die Together, part one of the four-part miniseries Murder in the Treasury Gardens. Part two, Romeo and Romeo. Part three, Posing with Pistols. And part four, the Gallows of Gay Hate will go on general release over the next three weeks. 
If you'd like to hear these instalments right now, you can listen to them ad-free as a Forgotten Australia supporter. You can support via Apple or Patreon, and links are in your show notes. Supporting Forgotten Australia, which is completely independent and written, produced, and everything else by me, costs the same as a cup of coffee a month, and it helps me cover the costs involved with research. As a thank you for becoming a supporter, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, and you'll also get immediate access to a dozen or so exclusive bonus episodes. So many thanks to Michelle Dine, Joat Goodwind, Rashmi Menon, Tracy Fisher, and Timothy Thornton, who've all become supporters recently. The Treasury Gardens are today one of Melbourne's prettiest public spaces. Yet they only exist because, at least to white colonisers in the early days of the Port Phillip settlement, the land was a swampy gully and therefore worthless. Even in property-mad Melbourne, no one could be induced to buy the allotments. So, in 1851, the same year Victoria became a colony and the gold rush began, those 14 marshy acres were set aside as a public reserve. Not that this meant anything really in terms of recreation and beautification. The land was mostly used as a thoroughfare, its slopes beaten hard by the wheels of heavy drays being driven to and fro. The only foliage were a few clumps of struggling gum trees. Yet, beside this wasteland were to be erected two of the city's most important edifices, the Treasury Building and the Government Printing Office. It wasn't very becoming to have such places of importance gazing down on an eyesore. So, in 1867, Clement Hodgkinson, head of the Lands Department, who'd already had a triumph with the adjoining Fitzroy Gardens, turned his attention to working his magic on the long-neglected reserve. The patriotic Clement conceived of a garden whose paths would follow the layout of the Union Jack. These walkways would each be planted with different trees, such as English elms, Queensland oaks, Moreton Bay figs and weeping willows. Garden lawns would be dotted with exotic shrubs and bushes and would slope to newly created little creeks. Everything was to be pleasant to the eye and the ear and to the hearts and souls of English men and English women. Such landscape gardens can be designed and planted quickly enough, but they take time to reach their fruition. Five years after work started, in February 1872, Clement Hodgkinson's vision was really starting to be realised. A writer for Melbourne's leader newspaper was thrilled by the completeness of the marvellous transformation. Many of the trees, he wrote, were already 15 or 20 feet tall and were in the full vigour of lusty youth. The Treasury Gardens, this writer said, created in the beholder feelings of mingled astonishment and admiration and they were, quote, an ornament to the city. But less than a month after he wrote these words, around 4.30pm on Tuesday the 5th of March, this ornament to the city was spattered with blood and wreathed in gun smoke. The Treasury Gardens had become the scene of a crime unlike any committed before in Victoria, or, as far as anyone knew, anywhere else either. That afternoon, as the mercury remained uncomfortably high, news of the Treasury Garden shooting sped like quicksilver through the maze of Melbourne streets. There had been half a dozen witnesses to the immediate aftermath of the gunshot. 
many more had seen the dead body taken from the gardens and the survivor whisked away under arrest by Constable Balfour. These witnesses all talked to people who talked to people. That evening, in city restaurants, coffee palaces, club rooms, hotel bars and wine saloons, Melburnians spoke of little else but the strange and remarkable tragedy that had happened right on the edge of their city. Certainly, people who knew the men involved, who'd been with them earlier that day, talked at length, not only to police, but also to reporters. Whether you read The Age, The Argus, The Herald or The Daily Telegraph, the following day each masthead would carry thousands of words about the shooting. Much more coverage was to come in the months that lay ahead. Yet, while the events leading up to the tragedy were described in as much detail as evidence and decency would allow, the earlier lives of the two men involved in the shooting would remain obscure even though examination of their backgrounds might have shed more light on the why of what happened. 150 years later, it is possible to probe a little more deeply into this mystery. In researching this episode, I used the National Library of Australia's Trove database of historic Australian newspapers, where complete digitised copies of The Age, The Argus, The Herald and other Melbourne newspapers can be accessed for free. I also went to the Public Record Office of Victoria, located in North Melbourne, where the capital case file documents about this case are held. The file comprises 55 original handwritten pages dating from 1872. Most of the information they contain was reported at the time. Most, but not all. One police memo included a family address in Dublin, Ireland, and this allowed me to learn more about one of the men from records at Ancestry.com.au and from articles in historic Irish newspapers. When making Forgotten Australia, my aim is always to delve as deeply as possible, in the hope we'll be able to better understand these people and the events and eras that shaped them. As we'll see, the tragedy in the Treasury Gardens could have been the culmination of traumas caused by famine and war. What is certain, though, is that it took place in an era of utter hatred for homosexuality. This was a society that persecuted and prosecuted men who had sex with men. Given half a chance, judges would hang them. Murder in the Treasury Gardens is a brutal story, and it includes brutal details but to omit them would be to look away from the world that created and destroyed Edward Feeney and Charles Marx. Edward Feeney enjoyed a sweet start to life. He wasn't like a kid in a candy shop, he was a kid in a candy shop because his father had a prominent confectionery store in Dublin. Ned, as he'd be called, was born to Andrew and Letitia Feeney in June 1834. He was baptised into Roman Catholicism at Dublin's St Michael and John's Church. The Irish City and Regional Directories found at Ancestry.com.au show that the Feeney store was at 20 Parliament Street, which is on the corner that shared with Essex Quay in Dublin's neighbourhood of Temple Bar. It was a prime spot, and the business, which specialised in fancy breads, cakes and sweets, was popular with people promenading along the river. Andrew Feeney was a middle-class merchant with some public profile. Dublin newspapers record him taking an interest in charity and in civic affairs. But Andrew and his business were also sometimes mentioned in the Dublin Evening Post in more colourful circumstances. 
such as in February 1838 when a Mrs. Butler came into the store. This respectable female, as the paper called her, ordered and paid for some sweets. But while a worker was bagging her purchases, the sly Mrs. Butler snaffled a penny cake from the counter and stuck it in her mouth. Andrew Feeney saw what she'd done and angrily grabbed three pennies from the woman. One coin he kept for himself, payment for the purloined pastry. The other two pennies were the arbitrary fine he'd imposed for her theft. Good Catholic that he was, Andrew dropped these coppers into the charity box that he'd nailed to the counter. Mrs. Butler was so displeased that she charged Andrew Feeney with assault and she took him to court. The magistrate had to listen to much blarney from both sides. Finally, Andrew Feeney accepted blame, but he hoped the court would see there had been mitigating factors. In return, Mrs. Butler dropped the assault charge, and the magistrate ordered Mr. Feeney to pay restitution and minor costs. Little Ned Feeney wasn't quite four years old at this point, and he may not have understood why his da had to go to court. But stories like this tend to be retold as family law, so it's likely that Ned heard all about it later on. Ned was five and a half when the family store featured in a much bigger and much darker news story. There's a very good chance he remembered this one, not just because he was a bit older, but because it was so sinister. On Wednesday evening, the 18th of December, 1839, a week before Christmas, a 12-year-old boy was playing with friends near Temple Bar when a finely dressed gentleman approached with an offer. The Dublin Morning Register quoted the man thus, Would you like to take some cakes? If you do, come to Feeney's in Parliament Street and I will give you plenty. I will also make a gentleman of you. I will give you fine clothes and anything else you want. The boy took up this generous offer and he went with the man to Feeney's. There, they loaded up with eight cakes. The man then took the kid off in his carriage. They drove around the dark streets of Dublin for two or three hours. Finally, suddenly, the man slapped a plaster adhesive over the boy's mouth, held his hands tight and stood on his feet to stop him from struggling. This villain ordered the cab driver to take them to the, quote, dissecting house in Peter Street. A dissecting house. This ghoul clearly planned to murder the boy and sell his fresh corpse to medical students so they could cut him to pieces in the name of science. As the carriage came to a stop, the plucky boy seized his chance. Freeing a boot, he kicked his abductor in the ankle and then jumped from the carriage and escaped into the night. With bits of the sticky gag still stuck to his face, the lad ran to passers-by and they summoned the police. Soon afterwards, a posse was roaming the city. The Dublin Morning Register's report said at the time of printing, the monster was still on the loose. This article was headlined, Diabolical Attempt at Murder, Burking in Dublin. Burking. This referred to Burke of Burke and Hare Infamy. William Burke and William Hare had, a decade earlier in Edinburgh, killed 16 people so they could sell their bodies to an anatomist who then used them in dissection lectures. Now... Burkism had come to Dublin, and the fiend had used Feeney's cakes as his diabolical bait. A prominent Dublin city surgeon was appalled at the accusation that a body thief might find buyers among the medical gentlemen of his city. So he investigated with the help of three prominent city personages. 
the surgeon interviewed the boy about the particulars of the case. The lad said that he and the man had gone into Feeney's. There, a Miss Feeney, who was most likely one of Ned's sisters, had sold those eight cakes to his abductor. Yet when the investigating medico interviewed Miss Feeney, she denied serving any man in company with the boy that day. Inquiries were also made among city cab drivers. None had picked up the gent and the boy. Further, no cab inspectors had seen them riding around for hours, which surely would have drawn some attention. Then, of course, there was the unlikely claim the boy had made. Would his abductor really have commanded any old cab driver to take them to the dissecting house? Turned out that the boy, a fatherless juvenile delinquent, had made up the story. It had been his excuse for why he'd been away from home for much of the night. As for a local body-thieving business, the investigating surgeon told the press he'd been authorised by the city's anatomical inspector to reassure the public that the, quote, supply of subjects, unclaimed bodies in hospitals, exceeds the wants of medical students. In less fancy language, Dublin already had too many deadens for anyone to create more corpses for cash. Case closed. Except, of course, in the imaginings of impressionable young lads. Given his family's store was central to the story, young Ned Feeney may very well have had nightmares about body snatchers and the dreadful things that surgeons did to corpses with their scalpels and their bone sores. After all, even little boys knew about such things. One of the most popular books in print back then was the Newgate Calendar. You'd find one in most middle-class homes. The Newgate Calendar was a vital part of moral education, Regularly updated, it was a Bible-sized illustrated tome dedicated to describing crime and punishment, including the gory details of murders and hangings. Like all children, Ned was raised in the knowledge of such things, and he knew that the bodies of executed murderers were consigned to the dissectionist table, this post-mortem punishment part of their legal sentencing. Irony of ironies, body snatcher William Burke's body had suffered this fate a fate some believed was worse than death. Because being cut up meant you couldn't have a proper Christian burial, and that meant you couldn't go to heaven. Little Ned Feeney had a fair complexion, blue eyes and dark hair. He was a good school student who could read and write. Ned also received an education in what it meant to be an Irishman, both from his father and from events unfolding around them. Ned was to turn nine in 1843. Daniel O'Connell, the Irish political activist, had proclaimed that this would be the repeal year, by which he meant that he and his supporters would force the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, to dissolve the legislative union between Great Britain and Ireland. Popular momentum would come from monster meetings, what we'd call protest rallies, organised by Dan O'Connell and the Loyal National Repeal Association. One of these was planned for Saturday the 14th of October at Clontarf in Dublin's northern suburbs and it was expected to draw half a million supporters. But Ireland's Lord Lieutenant issued a proclamation that banned the meeting. He meant business too, sending 2,500 soldiers, 1,000 police and four artillery guns to enforce his order. On the appointed Saturday morning, at various points around Dublin and the surrounding counties, hundreds of thousands of people began to congregate. Faced with the prospect of mass casualties, 
Dan O'Connell and his supporters called off the monster meeting and sent out riders to urgently turn back marches. In the end, the day was to pass peacefully. When Dan O'Connell promised to legally prosecute every official involved in banning the Clontarf meeting, the Dublin Evening Mail reported that Ned Feeney's dad had this notion first. Quote, Even this idea is not original. For our neighbour, Mr Feeney, the radical baker in Parliament Street, had a large placard exhibited in his shop window this morning, in the words and figures following, that is to say, Notice, the 500,000 penny buns prepared for the great Clontarf meeting of yesterday are now on sale at half penny apiece. We may thank the government for this loss, but an action will be brought for the recovery, and maybe they won't be able to pay. Bow wow. Bow wow came with three exclamation marks. It's reasonable to assume that Ned learned about politics and English oppression from his dad, the radical baker, with the odd sense of humour. But fighting for freedom was harder when you were fighting against famine. Andrew Feeney had made a good crust from his fancy bread shop. But the reality was that many of his countrymen couldn't even afford penny cakes. At this time, nearly half the population subsisted exclusively on potatoes. Most of the rest depended heavily on them for sustenance. In 1845, a blight struck the potato crops and there were worse failures in the years that followed. The effect on Ireland was devastating. Newspapers were soon printing articles about the tragic ends of individuals and whole families, coroners across the country returning the chilling verdict, death by starvation. Ireland's population had been around 8.5 million at the start of the potato famine. Over the next seven years, roughly one million people died from starvation or from disease brought on by insufficient nutrition, and as many as two million people emigrated. Hundreds of thousands were forced into workhouses under the British's despised poor laws. Millions more depended on food relief, despite working on farms that were exporting grain, meat and other food to England. That the English government gave only limited and begrudging assistance deepened Irish resentment to British rule. Ireland would be forever changed. As the capital, Dublin weathered the famine better than rural regions. But the population increased as poor people arrived looking for work or assistance. Historian Maurice Craig said the streets became, quote, a gigantic refugee camp. As shown in the recent collection of essays, Dublin and the Great Famine, there was a wide range of experiences within the city. The wealthiest continued their lives of luxury, and the middle classes didn't suffer as much as the urban working poor and their country counterparts. In Dublin, those who died mostly died in the workhouses. So we don't know how the Feeney family fared. It might be a clue, though, that I've found no further newspaper mentions of their fancy bread shop after the famine. And an Andrew Feeney was arrested for begging in Dublin in June 1852, though it's not clear if this was Ned's dad fallen on hard times. What we do know is this. Ned Feeney was 11 when the famine began, and he was 18 when it finished. These are very formative years, and the experience surely took some mental and emotional toll. The same is likely true of his next experience as a witness to world history. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. As a man, Ned stood five feet and six inches tall and he was solidly built. He worked for a time in a commercial house in Dublin. At the age of 24, so around 1858, Ned enlisted in the 18th Royal Irish Regiment. This got him out of Ireland, yet it meant doing the bidding of the British. The English census of 1861 records Ned as quartered at a military camp in Kent. These handwritten records at Ancestry.com.au contain pages and pages of names of other young Irish soldiers there at this time. Like Ned, they'd soon be fighting in a war of oppression that reminded them of their own upbringing. The 18th Royal Irish Regiment of Foot, known simply as the Royal Irish, was legendary. First raised in 1684, they'd seen action in the American War of Independence, the Battle of Alexandria, the Opium Wars, the Crimean War, and the Second Anglo-Afghan War. But in April 1863, the Royal Irish had a new mission for the Empire. 28 officers and 688 rank-and-file men sailed from Portsmouth on the large passenger clipper Elizabeth Ann Bright. They were bound for the colony of New Zealand. While the Maori War against the British occupation had been burning for 20 years, it had been limited to localised conflicts. Now it was set to explode. The Royal Irish arrived in Auckland on the 3rd of July. Its men were greeted with much enthusiasm and fanfare by the white colonists. The men of the 2nd Battalion had come to enforce the confiscation of Maori land and ensure the suppression of resistance. These policies were soon to be written into the law. It was a bleak irony that Ireland had been subjected to identical land theft and violent subjugation for two centuries, and the very laws that had established tyranny in Ireland were the model for what was to be done in New Zealand. Ned Feeney and his Royal Irish comrades were marched into camp at Otahuhu. Within two weeks, they were in the front lines of the new war. One rather dry historical summary tells us, quote, The Great South Road engagements occurred on 17 July 1863 when the Nazi power forces attacked the 18th Regiment at Martin's Farm, south of Ramarama. The regiment suffered five deaths and 11 more soldiers were wounded in this engagement. But one contemporaneous newspaper report brings home the startling ferocity of this engagement, albeit from a white settler perspective. Headlined, The War in Auckland, this article in the Taranaki Herald began, quote, This day, the 17th of July, will long be memorable in the province of Auckland as the day on which the Maoris threw off the mask of friendship and levied deliberate war against Her Majesty's troops. Piecing together accounts from combatants, the writer related that 50 men of the 18th, under Captain Ring, and the 65th, commanded by Major Turner, had that morning been in the bush escorting a convoy of 18 carts laden with supplies from the Queen's Redoubt. 
They got to Mr. Martin's farm safely, where they met other soldiers who, coming from the other direction, said the way ahead was clear of Maori. The escort continued, and after just 100 yards, the Maori sprang their ambush, described by the Taranaki Herald's reporter as a trap carefully planned and skillfully executed. He said of the men of the 18th and 65th, quote, Outnumbered and beset on both sides and in front, the gallant men did not quail. They returned the fire of the enemy with spirit, carefully retreating and preventing their assailants surrounding them. As they retreated, the Maori broke cover and tried to close in, necessitating a bayonet charge that bought enough time for the colonisers to turn tail and get away. This reporter had wanted to see the aftermath for himself rather than just hear about it. Visiting the battle scene with reinforcements, he didn't shy from bringing the horrors of war home to the reader. First, they'd come across wounded soldiers, and a little further on in the bush, they found three dead men. Quote, Stiff and cold, they lay bathed in blood. One of these soldiers had been done to death with an axe. Quote, the tomahawk broke in the bones of his face across the left eye and onto the temple, exposing the brain and the swollen tongue lolled out of his mouth. This man, the reporter said, quote, presented a more fearful spectacle than it often falls to the lot of one to witness. The Royal Irish lost five men that day, and another 11 soldiers were wounded, most of them severely. While we don't know if Ned Feeney was directly involved in this battle or in supporting the survivors, we can say that from this day forward, he and his mates were alive to the possibility of their own sudden bloody deaths in a brutal campaign that mirrored the oppression under which they'd been born and raised. The Royal Irish would take part in major invasions and battles. On the last day of March in 1864, Captain Ring led his men in the first battle of Arako. They faced 300 Maori warriors, about one-third of them women children fought alongside their parents. The Royal Irish was soon in trouble, and in a desperate bluff, Captain Ring demanded the surrender of the Maori defenders. Chief Rowi Maniapoto yelled back a cry that translates to, we will continue to fight as long as it takes. The battle raged for three days, with 1,500 men fighting on the English side. In the end, the colonial invaders beat back their enemy at great cost. Captain Ring was killed in action. The British lost 17 men in total and had another 51 wounded at a time when minor injuries could mean death from infection or gangrene. The Maori suffered 80 dead, among them women and children. This battlefield must have been a horrific sight. And Ned and his comrades would see plenty more. The Royal Irish spent nearly seven years in New Zealand, and Ned Feeney was there for the entire duration. In late 1869 or early 1870, with their deployment coming to an end, large numbers of men were eligible for discharge. Some elected to remain and settle in New Zealand, where they'd be holding veterans' reunions well into the 20th century. Others, who'd been sent to Sydney or Melbourne as the first stop of their journeys home, would decide to stay in Australia, seeking a new start, rather than returning to England and Ireland. Ned Feeney was one of them. He was discharged in Sydney in August 1870 and given a good reference. 
Ned, now 36 years old, moved to Melbourne. As a boy, he'd grown up through seven years of the potato famine, a prolonged humanitarian disaster that, per capita, still ranks as one of the worst in history. As a man, he'd served seven years in a brutal colonial war of occupation that had Irish soldiers doing their share of soul-searching. We don't know how Ned's experiences affected him, but we do know that post-traumatic stress disorder was around long before it was given that name. That is to say that Ned may have suffered symptoms that included anxiety, mood swings, paranoia, nightmares, depression, and suicidal ideation. His emotional, mental, and spiritual predicament would have been magnified and intensified if he was homosexual, which, as we'll hear, was almost certainly the case. In colonial Australia, as throughout the empire, homosexuality had to be kept latent and secret. Be caught committing or attempting sodomy, and you'd face the worst that society and the law could bring crushing down. Fear of exposure and punishment was pervasive. Ned Feeney drank in Melbourne, and it's likely one of the reasons he did so was to dampen or deaden his pain and his fear. Melbourne had promised a new life, yet Ned's new life meant exposure to more horror. The Royal Irish were celebrated wherever they went. When companies had arrived in Sydney and Melbourne, they'd received warm receptions. So, with his good reference, Ned was able to get a wardsman's job at Melbourne Hospital. During his long service with the Royal Irish, Ned would have learned a thing or two about dealing with the wounded, the sick, the dying and the dead. As a former soldier, he'd be expected to know how to act in an emergency, to cope with the sight of blood and to follow orders. All of this would have made him a good fit at Melbourne Hospital. For his labours, Ned would receive a modest wage, and he'd share quarters on the ground floor of the central building. Ned would be free to come and go as he pleased when not on duty, though a 10pm curfew was in place. Melbourne Hospital had been established in 1848 as a cottage on the corner of Lonsdale and Swanston Streets. It had had 10 beds and in that first year, 75 people were treated. One third of them had died in hospital. While that survival rate would improve, it wouldn't improve by a lot. In 1870, the original Melbourne Hospital building still stood, but it had become almost lost amid the additions that had been made necessary as the city and colony's populations exploded during the gold rush. Melbourne Hospital now comprised a grand three-storey main brick building, flanked by two-storey brick eastern and western wings, and there were two further eastern pavilions. The complex was fronted by a circular driveway that sloped through landscaped gardens to a tall picket fence that enclosed the grounds from Lonsdale Street. Entrance for pedestrians and carriages was via a guarded gatehouse. A Weekly Times article in September 1870 called Melbourne Hospital the city's most important public institution and described its people, buildings and facilities in glowing terms. Cleanliness and calm were said to be paramount. The polished and panelled wards, which offered perfect ventilation and pleasing views, were patrolled by nurses whose pleasant uniforms were of great comfort to patients. There was a handful of resident doctors and pharmacists, with more than a dozen visiting surgeons and physicians, among them the city's most prominent men of medical science. 
This Weekly Times article didn't mention wardsmen like Ned Feeney. They were meant to be invisible, the foot soldiers of the complex, doing the grunt work. And there was plenty of grunt work in Melbourne Hospital. Life expectancy in Victoria was 46 for men and 49 for women. People got sicker sooner and more seriously. Any sort of cut, however minor, might kill you through sepsis, that is, infection, and the use of antiseptics in surgery and patient care was then in its earliest infancy. Antibiotics were three quarters of a century away. Tuberculosis, consumption, was then a major killer. In an October 1870 Weekly Times article, it was noted that nearly one in three of the adult population of Melbourne aged 20 to 45 and one in four in Victoria was fated to die from consumption. And if infection and consumption didn't get you, then crime, accident or drunkenness might. There was no shortage of victims of malice, shootings, stabbings and bashings, and misfortune, ranging from people crushed under the wheels of heavy carts or horribly burned in the fires that broke out regularly in the city's wooden lodgings and places of business. Making it into Melbourne Hospital was no guarantee you'd make it out. The year before Ned joined, according to Melbourne Hospital's 1869 annual report, the institution treated 3,335 inpatients. Of these, 2,539 were listed as cured or relieved. 468 had died. That was nearly one in five. According to the Melbourne Hospital Committee's report on the second week of August 1870, around the time that Ned signed on, they had 370 patients in beds. Based on the averages, 66 of these people would not be going home. So, day in and day out, Ned Feeney would be staring death in the face. Wardsman's duties included transporting patients around the hospital, lifting and turning them in their beds, removing soiled and bloody clothes and linen for cleaning, and moving and washing medical equipment such as bone sores and injecting needles. Ned also had to remove the dead from their beds to the morgue, where the city's preeminent medical men performed post-mortems and the coroner, Dr Richard Yule, conducted inquests. Ned seemed to be good at his job. He was praised for having a good character, for being a sober and efficient worker, and for showing kindness to patients. Around February 1871, Ned Feeney made a new friend. This was his new co-worker, Charles Marks, who'd been hired by the hospital as an assistant wardsman. Charlie was then 25 or 26 years old, and he'd worked at sea. Otherwise, his background is obscure. What we can know, because we can still see it with our own eyes in photographs, is that Charles Marx was very handsome. He was about Ned's height, 5'6", and also dark-haired. He had light, clear eyes. While Ned by then had a big beard, Charlie preferred hefty mutton chops. Both Ned and Charlie were single and neither had any family on this side of the world, and neither seemed to have made many friends, male or female. Ned and Charlie became close, and they were said to be inseparable. Not only did they live and work together, but they'd spend all their free time in each other's company. From around June of 1871, they frequented Mr. Abraham Briscoe Clay's wine shop at 245 Burke Street East. 
Burke Street East was Melbourne's liveliest district. It heaved with watering holes, cheap restaurants, billiard saloons, bowling alleys and theatres. The back lanes were a hive of scum and villainy, drunks and harlots, thieves and garrotters lurking in every shadow. There was also a new garish addition to Burke Street in the form of what were called larrikins, and these flashily dressed, foul-mouthed and very badly behaved young men and women had everybody up in arms. Burke Street was also famous for its murderers. For over a decade, Melbourne's primo tourist destination had been the Burke Street Waxworks, established by the phrenologist Professor Sohir, but a few years ago taken over by Max Kreitmeier. While the Waxworks' religious and royal figures were crowd-pleasers, its most popular exhibition was without doubt the upstairs Chamber of Horrors. There, the colony's worst killers stood in effigy. Some were even dressed in the actual clothes they'd worn in life, and their faces were mainly moulded from death masks made after they'd been hanged, but before their bodies had been delivered to the dissection table. By the end of 1871, Victoria was no longer executing as many people as it once had. There'd only been a handful since the start of the decade. Back in the 1850s, dozens had gone to the gallows every year. Yet, whenever the hangman did have a new victim, you could be sure there'd be an addition to the Chamber of Horrors. While Burke Street could be wild, Mr Clay's wine shop was fairly mild. Ned Feeney and Charlie Marks were pleasant customers, coming in most nights around 8 o'clock to occupy their usual seats. For an hour or so, they'd have a few wines and chat with each other and with Mr and Mrs Clay. Ned and Charlie drank in moderation and got themselves back to Melbourne Hospital each night well before curfew. Though Charlie was later described as a little fast, likely on account of his youth, both were considered decent and respectable men with quiet natures. Yet to see them talking and drinking was to wonder about the nature of their relationship. As Melbourne's Daily Telegraph would put it, they enjoyed a quote, friendship so strong that it was noticeable to the most casual observers. If it was that obvious to even casual observers, their intimacy was not lost on those who saw them regularly, other workers at Melbourne Hospital, and especially the wine bar owner Mr Clay and his wife. Based on what these people would say, the Telegraph was to report the men's strange bond of affection was their greatest peculiarity. Their best shared pleasure, the paper reported, was, quote, the enjoyment of each other's society. Such a relationship would raise eyebrows and set tongues wagging. Were they friends or were they lovers? Being homosexual was not a crime in colonial Victoria, but committing a homosexual act, that was a capital crime. While no one had yet been hanged for sodomy in Victoria, it might be a case of never say never. The colony's chief justice had tried to hang a man for homosexual acts, and each of his fellow Supreme Court justices had handed down severe punishments for sodomy, including life imprisonment with years spent in chains or under hard labour, and floggings with the maximum number of 150 lashes inflicted. Ned Feeney had lived through famine, lived through war, and now he lived day to day taking care of sick, hurt and dying people. In addition to all of these stresses, 
it's likely that what he did in his private life was putting his life at risk. It was imperative that he and Charlie not raise too many suspicions and that they should never be caught in any sort of compromising situation. Ned Feeney was under intense pressure. While we can't definitively say why, what we do know is this. On the 5th of February 1872, one month to the day before the Treasury Garden shooting, Ned Feeney decided he'd had enough. Life was no longer worth living. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, Murder in the Treasury Gardens. Parts two, three, and four will go on general release soon. But if you'd like to hear the entire story now, it's available to Patreon and Apple supporters, and you can access a free trial. Links are in your show notes. As a supporter, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, along with exclusive bonus shows. If you enjoy Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.